How are you doing? I'm Doug Devaney, and you're listening to The Plastic Podcasts. Tales of the Irish Diaspora. We all come from somewhere else. Three scientists from London proposed rasp the bad potatoes very finely into a tub, wash the pulp, strain, repeat. Dry the pulp on a griddle, mix with oats and flour to make a bread. 70,000 leaflets were printed in English. Rasp with what? The peasants' cabins had no ovens. The black pulp stank. Blight bread didn't catch on. Now, we're a fairly prosaic bunch here at the Plastic Podcasts. Anyone who's read the blog at www.plasticpodcasts.com will know there's not much lyricism at work here. But that all changes today with our guest, poet Cherry Smith. Born in Antrim, she had her first collection, When the Lights Go Up, published in 2001, and has since had three further collections and a novel go to print. Her latest work, Famished, is a heart-rendingly beautiful account of the potato famine, its events and effects. And you just heard an extract there. To be honest, I'm fairly daunted by the prospect of talking to a bona fide poet, so I think I'll ask, how are you doing? I'm good. Yeah, the sun is out, um, and... Uh... Yeah, it's a glorious autumnal morning in North London. How do you normally spend your days apart from, like, um, you know, being interviewed by various different podcasts? Well, usually two and a half days a week, I work at the University of Greenwich and I teach poetry, which is often teaching people to trust their voice and to use their voice, which I love. Um, then the other two days I'm running around trying to make a, the rest of my living as a poet. And I also write about art, particularly painting. Do you think people don't trust their voices enough? Definitely not. And they've kind of got this voice that is grafted onto them. And you can see it particularly with, you know, Muslim working class women, you know, young black men. There's a fear of speaking from their true selves. And I say, you know, who are you in this? Why are you using white characters? Um, Is this how you feel? What do you want to say about what's happening with Islamophobia or Black Lives Matter? And it's kind of like they they think there's a voice that you must use for poetry that's kind of 19th century. And then there's there's feelings that you must have in poetry that are somehow already received. You know, that's a whole question of you know, trusting yourself to break out of the constriction of language or class or identity, but bring all of yourself with you. And then we get into talking about cliches, which is another whole way that we reduce language and reduce our voices and reduce our imaginations. Is this where you thought your life would be going when you were, say, 14, 15? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I I don't really think about the future much. I was talking to a friend about that recently. He's also from the North. And and we we were saying, did the troubles have that effect of not allowing us to believe in a future? We might be maimed, we might be dead. You know, that sort of living through, you know, terror, really. Um, Or is it more of a personality trait? I... I always felt like an outsider in my home and in some ways in, in the town and the culture. So I thought the way to be
be an insider was to get away from there. <laughs> but I think, again, that's just a very deep personality trait. Um, I kind of didn't want to become a teacher um, because it seemed that women taught and then they married. That was the kind of plan. Um, but I see lecturing uh, in something I love um, really teaches me about poetry itself and about myself and my writing. So it feels very organic. So going then back to um, being 14 years old in Northern Ireland, what was life like then for you? Well, I suppose I had experienced five years of the Troubles and I um, can't remember when we had a huge bomb in my the town I went to school in. Um, and if it had been 15 minutes later, there would have been a lot of school children killed or injured. Um, it was just before we got out of school in the main street there. Um, so it was a state of super vigilance, being searched, going into shops, uh, making a broad detour around any on, uh, uh, you know, parked cars that were empty in the town. Um, yeah, I think it. I think it just made me, um, on one hand, this vigilance, and then another hand, you know, I was a teenager, so I wanted to go out and start meeting guys and drinking, and you know, saying, "Well, it's fate if something happens to me." So you have these, which is sort of interesting when I look at young people now around coronavirus. You know, I completely understand that. I don't care if I get it, you know, the, like the will to live and meet people and have fun is so powerful in that, in that early state of adulthood, isn't it? But actually speaking of coronavirus as well, I mean, certainly I'm aware that you, you developed a kind of spider sense almost of everybody around you, you know, um, are they wearing a mask? Are, am I too near? Are, are, um, are they too near? And things like that. Was that a kind of microcosmic version of what you were sensing in Northern Ireland at the time? I think you kind of accrue it so gradually that you don't even realize you're doing it. And then when I had American friends who came back home with me in my 20s and they said, you know, what was it like? And I said, oh, well, it was pretty normal, except we did this, this and this. And um, I realized how deeply it had affected me. And when I used to go for a walk, even when I came to England and I'd be walking somewhere and if I saw a man on the horizon or two men, I immediately thought, what are they doing? what are they digging up what are they burying <laughs> there was a sense of um menace of yeah this kind of fear this mysterious and menacing fear and um i suppose also driving along the road and coming behind an army truck and the guys sitting training their rifles on you and that's an incredibly unnerving experience uh, where, uh, you know, if you pull in or you can't overtake, you, you, you're just sort of held in, the, in this horrifying magnetism. Um, and while I didn't grow up in Derry or Belfast, there were all these other frames of, um, you know, militarism everywhere and para paramilitary stuff. Uh, you're driving home from somewhere and you get stopped by someone flashing a light and you don't know what they're doing, how official it is, and that that made you, um, yeah, 
very defensive and uh, outraged at the same time. Is it something that ever really leaves you? I don't think so. I really don't think so. I went to a play, I remember, at the Riverside Theatre. I can't remember. It was an Irish woman writer and there was a bomb blast in the in the middle or near the end of the play and I just burst into tears. Uh, I was so physically shocked and I couldn't stop crying. And of course it wasn't the play. It was, it was just the accumulative effect. And I thought, why didn't she warn us? But she didn't warn us because that would have ruined the dramatic moment. I think it, um, it's obviously transformed a lot by my writing, looking at the troubles and looking at colonialism and then the famine. And I think it does change how I hold it and how I see it. But just, I did a reading of my piece recently and because of the virus and the way the British government's handling it and mishandling it, I felt this rage about how they handled the famine and how they were prepared to sacrifice millions of people. And it's a very similar rhetoric. So I think, yeah, I'm very interested in those genetic scars of, of trauma. Uh, and how you process them. Something that you mentioned, which is the uh, the bomb blast that took place um, just by your school. What was the impact there on the on on the on, on on yourself and your school friends at the time? Do you recall? It was funny because there was a mixture of life as normal. Let's not talk about it. And then there would be these bomb scares during double maths. So girls got their boyfriends to ring up, say there's a bomb, and then we'd all be disrupted. And, you know, it, um, I remember the headmistress saying something, if there's another bomb scare, it'll be double maths on a Friday afternoon for everyone. And the bomb scare stopped for a while. So, you know, it's, it's a weird thing to, you know, think it was a bit like a fire drill. Oh, no, you'll go out and you stand in the cold and then you go in again. And it was, it was there, but not there, that kind of which... I suppose in some ways we're living now, we have to continue as though we're not going to get ill or we're not going to lose our loved ones because you can't operate in a state of constant fear, although obviously many people have to in more situations, but there's still, um, yeah, that edge between what is normal and what isn't is, I got used to that. And funny enough, when I, when I went to Israel-Palestine, I felt quite I wouldn't say at home but <laughs> I felt the familiarity I was not prepared for being searched going into cafes seeing people with weapons I thought oh yeah I know this world and that was a shock um yeah You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora. We all come from somewhere else. Find out more and subscribe to us at www.plasticpodcasts.com. Cherry Smith is a formidable poet with a truly original voice, and I wanted to know when it was that she realised her love of poetry and when she made the decision to become a writer. Very early on, um, and I, I noticed this when I was in Ireland quite a lot under lockdown and I would have dinner with friends and then we would sit around and someone would say give us a song 
give us a poem. And there was no sense of it being a big performance or anyone taking up space or showing off. It was just how the evening was shaped. And if I was going to do that in England, I would have to say, you know, we might have poems and songs, bring a poem or a song, but people just came with those things. And when I grew up, we had a very big extended family and they were quite religious, some of them, so they didn't have telly. And when you went round to their house, they, we had these big sing songs and everybody had to do a turn. So you had to learn bits of Bible verse or a song or a poem. And these poems could go on for 20 verses. So it was very much seen as something that was um, admired and important and part of the family culture. And um, I think, I don't know if that was unusual in a Protestant home, but it was um, definitely part, part of how I gauged, well, certainly how I learned some things about performing and um, enjoying it. And then I started to write poems probably very, very early, like seven or eight. And um, I just loved reading poetry, had poems read to me by my mom. And, you know, as soon as I started reading, I started to write out things that I loved. So I was always collecting images and ways of describing things. I just find that extraordinary, the sort of comfort and beauty I find in language. So yeah, being a poet, I, yeah, I don't know when that, it kind of got knocked out of me a bit when I went to Trinity because there was a sense that you had to be a white straight man to be a poet. And, and also how could I write like some of them, like Auden or like McNeese or like Eliot? It was a sense that you could never do it really. And when I came to London, then there was a big um, outburst of, spoken word and you know I just went to these open mic nights and very very informed by feminism and by the politics of the time the peace cnd marches things like that and the politics the activism kind of restarted or reignited my love for poetry and gave me that context that live context which I think is so important for some poets to have an audience there that they can write to and that that encourages the voice and the expression the courage that's rather about the early 80s yes mid 80s mid 80s late 80s yeah yeah um but there seemed to be sort of this immediate kind of almost punk post-punk explosion of sort of like uh of, of, of spoken word and of uh of poetry magazines and um uh, like you say, CND suddenly the, the whole protect and survive, protest and survive thing became became kind of big and so forth. Looking back on that, do you think there's any particular reason for that kind of turning point, or do you think that was just I don't know, just a I don't know, perfect storm of events? Yeah, I wonder what encouraged it. There was a lot of uh, input from the GLC to community groups and a lot of talk about political identities and encouraging people with different voices to speak out. A lot of funding for kind of community writing ventures. I mean, I, was, I, I went to the Irish Women's Centre um, quite a lot and wrote, led uh, writing classes there. 
also led writing classes in a Jewish care old people's home, which was great fun. It was that sort of sense that, you know, you got paid and there was, there were places where that was nurtured and people like Benjamin Zephaniah, Linton Kwesi Johnson, those people were, you know, key to that explosion. And yeah, why did it happen then? It was, it was in response to police harassment and, you know, I guess a right-wing government. It uh, and you know, it's there in different forms now, and it's it's still vibrant. It's going through a whole new vibrancy, which is fantastic. And I, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question though. Why did it happen then? Um, hmm, not I'm not really sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind uh, of interested in the notion of turning points sometimes and whether or not there are such a thing as is, is such a thing as a turning point or whether or not it's just simply that all of a sudden you look back and go oh that changed yeah and why was George, George Floyd a turning point where perhaps Philandro Castell you know was a turning point in a different way but I mean that was just as shocking just as horrific um and it was it to do with the lockdown and the pressure and the, the the feeling you know of i can't i can't sit around anymore and take this and it was a need to get out in the streets and a need to fight for something that you could fight for um whereas with coronavirus who are we fighting you know it's a very amorphous difficult thing and and we're all vulnerable in a totally different way and do you think poetry is part of that in the finding of your own voice Absolutely, yeah, I do. I um, I, I've seen it with you know young students who don't know what they're writing about and uh, and are kind of not not really engaged. And then you say, you know, how about writing about what happened last week with Killer Muslim Day? Tell me about that. How did that feel? Because I can't tell you about it. And then, you know, one of my students started to write about what it felt like to not go out that day because she was she was frightened of getting her hijab pulled off her head. And and she wrote a really angry, fantastic poem. And, you know, that was the beginning of her feeling like she had permission. And when did you feel that you had permission to become a poet again then? Well, definitely around, I think it was called there was something like the wild women cafe which was funded by the glc in the center of town and i used to go to that and it was you know a combination of this safe probably women only space that enabled me to speak and get rid of this kind of weight of the patriarchal canon which of course much of you know i'm part of that as well i'm you know imbued in it like mcneese and Yates, but it was great to say, okay, I don't need them, and I can, I can uh, thrive in my own way, I suppose. So your first um, collection of poems came out in two thousand and one, yes. Um, and just going back to that, how did that feel? Well, I really felt like it took a long time to get published, and it was, I was ecstatic. I think when you have your first book published, there's nothing like it, and to have a launch in Belfast and have my whole family and friends come to it and people I didn't know. It was, yeah, very, very important and uh, very empowering and, yeah, moving, I suppose, as well. And 
we then move on to um, writing a novel. Was that a very, very different experience for you? Yeah, um, I read recently a definition. What's the definition of, you know, the difference between poetry and prose and the difference is prose. <laughs> Everything we're talking in is prose. <laughs> the minute you try to define it. But I like the definition of, you know, poetry is like splashing into a pool and a novel is doing lengths. And it's it's a long form, there's there's sustained, you know, very careful, you know, long view. And I'm more of a short view person, really. I like I like the splash, I like working on a poem for a few weeks and then it can almost be published. I mean, that's that's wonderful and probably very impetuous that way. But it was very, very good training to write a longer piece and to be really involved in that world and wake up every morning and do that sort of lucid dreaming. What are my characters going to do today and where are they going to go? And then feeling that loss when they're gone. That was that was just really empowering and wonderful. And um, I did feel a little bit of uh, betrayal of poetry and poets, which was I didn't expect. <laughs> Because, you know, I was writing, working on the novel for a few years. I didn't write much poetry. It kept a little bit going, but it was very cinematic. And, you know, to have rather than just a shot in your head, you have a cinema, the whole film in your head. And that was really accompanying in a different way to poetry. And I suppose I write poetry to discover an insight, an emotional or intellectual insight. And in the novel, I ended up bestowing those insights to characters. And that felt very different. It felt generative in a different way. And it, it felt like I was talking to the bigger world, um, which sometimes with poems, you feel you're talking to your lover or your mother <laughs> and nobody else will get it. And it is quite amazing when they do. But So there's a kind of shared intimacy with poetry. Yes. Yes. And so when people come up to you with responses to that and either you feel, oh, yes, absolutely, you got it, or no, that's not what I meant at all, but you've taken this from it. I mean, what's, 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 your, what's your take on that? I'm sometimes surprised when I write something that is very personal and particular and people are moved by it and it, hasn't, it wasn't their experience, but they're obviously touched by the emotional charge of it and when they bring something I didn't see in it generally I find that really invigorating and I love the surprise of that because the poem is off on its own little feet going into someone else's house and meaning something else that yeah I didn't plan it's 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 wonderful which brings us neatly or, or, or raggedly uh, across to Famished. How long did it take you to, 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 to write the, um, the, the, the cycle of poems? Probably it was over two years, I think. The reading, the going to famine villages, museums, the walking around Connemara or Berra. Um, yeah, uh, probably two years, yeah. As, as I understand, this um, this all began with a, with, a, with, a, with a chance encounter with a poster in the London Underground. Yeah, it was a painting. 
by an artist called Thomas Sully, and it was a painting of Queen Victoria as a young woman, beautiful painting, and it was advertising an exhibition about her life and her role as queen and mother. And, um, and someone had written, or scratched rather, uh, across the surface of, of her forehead, Irish famine. And I remember just feeling that like a slap. And I looked around as if I could see the person who'd done it and I wanted to hug them. And I suddenly realized that I had erased it. I had effaced it. I had, you know, I just didn't know what Queen Victoria did during the famine. And I wanted to know, and I felt I should know. And that little bit of graffiti was in 2012 and it was just churning over in my head. And I, I, I thought I must do something. And then I thought, no, 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 it's too hard and it's too emotional and I can't, I'm not up to it. And then it came back probably in 2016, you've got to do it. And that was inspired by the migrant boats coming across the Mediterranean and just, you know, feeling the despair and awful, you know, tragedy of their lives. And then feeling I didn't know enough about the coffin ships. I knew there were these things called coffin ships but I wanted to know what those crossings were, were like, who, how many people took them, where did they arrive, how was life when they arrived. So I, I just felt that impetus to inhabit it and inhabit my own history and work out what was myth and what was fact and how I could move between those things with a poem. You move between a lot of things, actually, with the um, with, with the cycle poems, don't you? I mean, there's um, there's historical research, there's um, extracts of speech and newspaper article uh, from the time. There's also bits of children's nursery rhyme, uh, and, and and so on. It's not just simply a lyrical response, but a, but a whole amalgam of different influences in there. Um, was was that just something that 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 that, that fed into it as you as, as you were doing the research or was this part of part of something that was pre-planned there no none of it was pre-planned i just kept having these voices one of the first voice came before i'd done any research and i was sitting in anna mccarrig the tarun guthrie center and i thought may i did live in new york in the late 90s and i thought wow what would it be like to be a woman who grew up in Ireland, in rural Ireland, with so little and speaking Irish and leaving, losing her husband and children on the way. And so you arrive, you're living in the Bowery in New York in the slum, and you might have a thimble. That's all you have. And th those things just began that poem, you know, what do you call a woman with no husband, a widow, what do you call a, a, a woman with no children, a mother with no children, a poor soul. And I thought, how does she, how does she inhabit that grief? And that idea I heard that some um, migrants to America never wanted to go near the sea again, and some people never wanted to eat a potato again. And when you, you know, you realize that sort of, a version that becomes part of your life that that just that that voice came out and then I kind of more consciously looked for women's voices that I could inhabit in that way um, such as the young woman who ended up in Australia as a 
uh, Earl Grey orphan. They, they took 3,000 girl orphans from the workhouses in Ireland, north and south, and sent them out to Australia, basically to be wives for Australian men. And one was so distressed when she got there, they, they wanted to put her in a psychiatric care. And the doctor said, you know, she, she just needs love. She's been traumatized. And, and so that idea of this girl who'd lost everything what was her voice like? And, and that was a very haunting place to be because it was so unhinged. And I, I felt like it was such an unhinging experience for so many people, those dying, those who survived. And so there was that kind of tenor going through it. And then when I found the quotes by the Earl of Clarendon or by Trevelyan, they were so stark and so you know, unremittingly racist. And I, I didn't want to inhabit those men. And um, I didn't want it to be seen as being um, massaged by art. I wanted it just to be very stark. And with things like the nursery rhymes, I, I don't know who wrote One Potato, Two Potato. It was an anonymous um rhyme but i grew up with it and um then i i wanted to also echo that with some of the rhymes i wrote so there was sort of lyrical voices historical passages and then responses to um eritrean poets who were writing about african famine now and the idea that how do i respond to starvation now um as a person living with white privilege in the West, uh, how do I see a starving person? And, and I felt like it wasn't just a challenge to historical, you know, imperialism. It was also a challenge to how we respond today to the ongoing issue of famine, the ongoing use of political use of hunger and uh, dehumanization of, of um the people through the experience of famine. We'll be back with Cherry Smith in a moment. But first, The Plastic Pedestal, where I ask one of my interviewees to nominate a member of the diaspora of personal or cultural significance to them. This week, Tony Murray stakes a claim. A nice sense revolution in the air. Of the politest kind, of course. You actually stole my thunder a bit because I was going to have Dave Allen. <laughs> um, but I think you might have already done him. Um, but uh, um, if I may, I, I, I would like to have Dave Allen because he, for me, was so much a part of my kind of childhood, adolescence growing up, my sense of well, living here in London, but somehow being connected to Irish humour and Irish life. And um, I, um, I remember seeing him in one of his very, very early appearances. It was a Val Dunican show in the early 60s. My mum and dad used to watch it avidly, you know. And, uh, well, us lot, the kids used to kind of, I suppose, you know, put up with it kind of thing. Um, We'd sit there and sit through it. And then this guy comes on, Val Dunican introduced a new comic called Dave Allen. And he comes on and he's absolutely brilliant. Um, uh, so he got his own show quite soon and we watched, we watched that. Um, one of the things I loved about Dave Allen was his stories, the way he told ghost stories often, 
Do you ever used to lower the lights in the studio and uh, tell these these ghost stories as well as the jokes? And um, that reminded me of my uncle Michael in Ireland, who was a bit of a shanik here. You know, he used to tell us those stories when we were kids, went out for holidays. Um, but Dave Allen was just so cool. He was like, you know, this, those 60s suits and that persona. Um, and then I, I kind of uh, went off him a bit, I think, in the 80s. I didn't really follow his career much. He seemed to sort of, I felt, I don't know, wrongly, I think, that he'd been part of the old guard. And then we got this new alternative comedy, in inverted commas, um, which came along. And um, then someone asked me, uh, well, someone offered me a ticket to go and see him in London. And I said, what? On stage? Like real? You know, he's not on telly. He said, no, he does stand up again. He's gone back to doing the boards. And I I was really, I wasn't particularly enthusiastic about going because I just thought, no, it's not really 80s, is it? It's not kind of, I think this is late 80s. Uh, But I went and, oh, it was just absolutely brilliant. he did the best part of two hours non-stop and I came out onto Charing Cross Road out of that theatre with stomach cramps from laughing so much. I just, um, I just loved it and I thought, well, wow, you know, I was wrong. I, should, I took my eye off the ball with Dave Allen because he is, you know, fantastic. Um, I think it was his anecdotal style of comedy, you know, the way he could tell a story and also those endless observations on human foibles um, that we all have. Um, It was a kind humour, ultimately. I mean, he could be really sharp, but he was never antagonistic like a lot of comedians of his generation. And um, he just had a marvellous way of sending up pompous figures of authority, which... uh, always went down well with me. Tony Murray there, raising Dave Allen onto the plastic pedestal and making him his own. I shall content myself with Wogan. Now back to Cherry Smith. Cherry's cycle of poems, Famished, published by Pindrop Press, addresses the potato famine of 150 years ago. I ask her whether this is just old history or if the past is still very much a matter of the present for her. Yeah, everybody says that about Ireland. (laughs) history is ongoing well Doug you know the thing that struck me long before 2012 was the idea that before the famine we had 8.5 million people now we've got I think six or 6.5 we've never made up the two and a half million at least who died in the famine and that that kind of cycle of you know unemployment recession migration that it, it just continues and there were those moments during Celtic Tiger where lots of people were going back less young people were leaving where it felt like oh it's changing but um I I most I, I mostly kind of I was very shocked to learn that you know half the people who died in the famine spoke Irish and and you know or most of the people who died spoke Irish and that um there were four million speaking Irish in the 1840s and after the famine there were only two million. So it had this huge impact on the language and the fabric of the culture. And I think we are still 
seeing the effects of that. That's something that really struck me with 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 um, with, with famished is is the question about um, what uses a language if it can't protect you from this, uh, and that the um, the 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 swathe that the the famine cut through the the, the Geltoft area, um, and certainly where my where, where my where my dad's um, family are concerned, and they came from like very very rural County Clare. Um, None of them spoke Gaelic, uh, and there's that sense, perhaps, that you you suggest that there's a distrust of Gaelic after that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, people told me this still that uh, they were embarrassed to learn Irish. They found it um, backward, and they just put up with it. And one or two people who I asked to perform in Famished and read the Irish translations find that they were extraordinarily moved when they had to read it and, and re-inhabit um, the language that they'd so dismissed. And um, it was very important for me to ask uh, Irish-speaking poets to translate a few of the poems because it felt like putting that cultural loss, addressing the cultural loss and um, helping to um redress it really and i learned a lot about my own response to to irish which always felt like i didn't have the right to look at it or speak about it because i didn't have the any chance to learn it and um just working with uh the the two writers Eva casby and alfred mckay and having them around the piece and and um, Aoife came to nearly all the performances and, and read the, the field in Irish and it was ex one of the most extraordinarily moving parts of the whole performance for me um, and just just looking at the loss of indigenous languages and the vastness and the depth of what you're losing with, with these things and um, being very aware of what it means when people are now picking it up and even even Protestants in Belfast are beginning to learn Irish. I mean, it's just, it's a whole new renaissance of um, ident identity repair, I suppose you could call it. I noticed that it's, like a, it's, it's two poems in particular. It's uh, They Ate Grass in the Field that both get, um, and you put it in the, in, in the form. One's translated, one's transcreated. I wanted to ask, what's a transcreation? Well, again, it's someone who wasn't very confident about her Irish. And she said, I don't know if I can do it. And I'm going to have, I have to ask etymologists and I'm going to bring out words that have almost been lost, aren't used in Irish speaking anymore. And she really saw it as an archaeological thing um, where she was learning and she was um, interpreting it and she was a little bit you know the word gare is not a word that's associated really with field it's like a Connemara word for a little um, patch of land I think or even a garden and um, so she was a bit yeah even that thing about who's got the right to do it she felt that and she lives in the Gael Tocht and speaks Irish to her son but she she was one of those people who resented learning it and got away from it and then was pulled back and um, I, I, I just, I just find that all very profoundly moving and enriching to work with and think about.
as you went through um, your, 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 your research, and we we're also talking about um, uh, language and lost language and so forth, that there's a sense of a, a lost history here or a, um, a history that's been put to one side. Yeah, well, whose history is it? I mean, it's a broken history, isn't it? Um, and with that, then you get a lot of secrets and who holds the secrets? And you, you have, you know, the survivor shame in, on the Irish side and the survivor shame on the English side. And, you know, these um, stories that the English don't know either. And I think it was that, that sense of making links with a broader global picture that, that allowed me to retell the history um, in ways that could include, you know, Indian famines and um, responses to Churchill um, and those kind of legacies that are sacrosanct and just beginning to, to question and, and open that out was very important to me. Yes, because one of the things that strikes me, particularly with the, the, the third section, is that this is a much broader patchwork than just an Irish story. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, it's really looking, you know, someone said to me, if the famine was happening now, the Irish would be not allowed to come to England. We would be deported immediately and stopped from landing here. And I, I think um, looking at the ideological structures of growing fascism, you know, it's, the famine is a model for, you know, what's, what's happening now with with refugees and, and increasingly with the kind of elitism that we thought we'd begun to dismantle. And, um, you know, when you're excluded by it, by your skin or your accent or your education, um, you can really see how it works. And looking at the, the rights of grouse shooters to go out in their packs, um, while kids can't play, you know, in a bigger group in the playground. I mean, I just, I just find the kind of continuing entitlement of the British elite just, you know, profoundly shocking. And um, those, those sort of repercussions, you can see it throughout, throughout the world, really. Um, and I think you always think you're going to be ready for fascism when it comes and you're going to do the right thing. And then it creeps up in ways that you, you didn't even notice or you felt powerless to question. Or in this case, we were accepting so much because of the desire to protect each other. Um, but it's, yeah, it's very frightening to see what, what's going to be um, kind of solidified by these processes of disenfranchising people which are going on every day so let's Another extract there from the live performance of Famished by Cherry Smith with Laura Kinsella and Ed Bennett. Given that poets are reportedly solitary creatures, I ask her about the origins of this collaboration. I think the origins of working with collaborators was a sense that I didn't want to go out 
and read 10 minute extracts of famished. It's not a, a poem that can be extracted uh, very effectively. I wanted to read the whole thing, or I don't read the whole thing, but I read about um, 45 minutes of it. And I felt like I wanted a sense of the collective, the collective performance and the collective mourning because so many, so many deaths in the famine weren't mourned and so many rituals uh, of death were dismantled from the keening to the, the wake. Um, and I, I felt it was very important just to process that together. And I'd worked with Lauren Kinsella on an earlier project um, with her jazz group and she'd taken some other poems and put them to music and I absolutely loved working with her. She's an extraordinary improvisational singer and she makes these guttural, growling, gargling sounds and I, I, working with her I realised that she could embody the blight itself, she could talk uh, speak through her strange um, uh, improvised sounds and vocalizations in a way that words couldn't and she could speak for the anger and the grief and almost like the, the blight talking to itself um, which was just such a revelation to me and working with um, Ed Bennett using um, found fragments of, of sound from the sea or the wind and mechanical sounds he built an electronic score and so that was able to uh, draw out emotional contours if you like that that opened people up and kind of held them in a way that just the words alone perhaps couldn't and um, I, I just I loved the fact that people committed to coming to sit and and listen to you know an hour's length performance about the famine and that felt incredibly special to have that chance to perform it in that way and to create a space I had Q&A's after every performance and that felt very important for people to say we felt a silence there was a silence in our family there was a silence in the school there was a silence in the university it, and to have a space to talk about it and to take the book and go off and yeah learn learn aspects of our history again and did the performance of that take you back at all to those family gatherings where you would recite 20 verses of poetry or somebody would have a song and things like that was there a familial element to it do you think oh of course yeah and one of one of my cousins who was at those events came to the one in Dublin and it felt uh, like a circle coming round and of course when my family were there in the performance in Port Stewart that that felt um, yeah very was very holding and um, yeah it felt I suppose that I was fitting not only myself but my ancestors into a much broader canvas of history and belonging that perhaps um being from the north and being from a protestant tradition you're maybe self-excluded from that or there, there are ways in which people assume that you're not part of that history or not part of that suffering in the same way 
I wanted to come on to that because when you and I first met, um, you mentioned that you felt that uh, you weren't considered authentic for, for reasons of coming from Northern Ireland or being Protestant or indeed your own sexuality. Um, how does that manifest itself? I think that question of what gives me a right to do this is something a lot of writers and artists face. If you're a doctor, you don't ask that question, you fix the wounded body. Uh, if you're a writer, you don't know if you can fix it, you're just going to describe the wound. What qualifications have you got to describe the wound? Well, you know, I lived through some of the wound, but I also left the wounded by going to England, or I left the expectations of a heteropatriarchal culture, or, you know, it's, I don't think it's particular to me, but I think, you know, an archaeologist or scientist doesn't have to justify what they're doing, but often we do. And that imposter syndrome, a lot of very successful writers have talked about that. So funny enough, I think that perhaps if I'd stayed in Ireland, I wouldn't have felt the nerve to approach the famine. A, I might have thought it's all been done, and B, to talk about translation and transcreation of English into Irish. Perhaps these, these taboos or these shibboleths are imagined or are not as grand as you think they are. But um, I think if you look at the writing, George Bernard Shaw, James Joyce, Samuel Beckett, how many of them had to leave in order to have permission to do it? And um, I, I think being part of a very international intercultural society in London um, kind of gave me the strength to go back in my imagination and my language. It's interesting you talk about having to almost go away in order to be able to get if not perspective then permission to or if not permission then perspective uh, to, to, to write about matters like, like, like the famine and so on. And talking to Tony Murray last week, he was saying about the time that he spent living in, in Spain and he could simply describe himself as Irish without having to go, no, no, I'm, 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 I'm well, yeah, I've got Irish parents, but I was born in England. Da, da, da. And the, the, the lack of need to explain yourself. Yeah, absolutely. When I came to London, I was definitely Irish. I was stopped by the police and asked if I'd been drinking. Um, I was asked if I was a terrorist. Um, I was made fun of. I, a lot of the um, quotes in the book uh, around anti-Irish racism were said to me in the 80s. Uh, the um, potato weight in the shape of the potato, the paperweight in the shape of a potato, you can boil this in the case of famine. That was sold in an airport shop in England. Um, there just there were just many things that I found, yeah, much more Irish than I thought I was. And then when I went to um, America, funnily enough, you know, I felt more European. I was really then very identified as coming from Europe. And um, there, as as I said to you yesterday, the the stereotype was still there but it was formed out of different things instead of being a terrorist a drunk someone who's violent uncontrolled 
you were a saint or a scholar and had a fantastic eloquency. Um, and I was like, well, I'd like this stereotype much more. Thank you. Um, so I found it really invigorating and, and um, joyful to live in America for a few years. It was very good for me. It's interesting, though, that the, uh, the, 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 the uh, Super K plastic paddy is one that's either applied to um, uh, Irish and their descendants in England or in America. Uh, and there are two very, very different relationships, but they're still both considered inauthentic. What is that kind of judgment of the other that says you're not enough? Um, and I felt, you know, when I've met second and third generation Irish people, and they're particularly with women, their married name doesn't give it away. And I'm getting on really well with them. And I'm thinking, God, I just, you're so familiar to me. And I can't believe it with that German surname. And, and I, then I realize they're married to a German. And of course, their name is really McCartney or O'Leary or something. But it's um, interesting that I would say I have a couple of friends who were brought up in the North who are more British identified than some of the second or third generation Irish people I meet here. So it's, you know, it's, didn't Fintan O'Toole wrote a really great book maybe over 10, 15 years ago about um, Irish identity and is it, what's it called? Green card, black hole or something like that. You'll have to look that up. I don't know what it's called now. Um, but he talks about, you know, who can say who's more Irish, you know, someone working in a bar in Chicago who's third generation Irish or someone living in the heart of Dublin um, who uh, can't wait to leave and go to Australia and, you know, leave it all. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think those those divisive identity tropes are, are so limiting. Um, um, I wanted people to identify with famished who aren't Irish or second generation, third, but are just interested in how um, suffering is manifested and dealt with. What's the legacy of, of trauma and can poetry transform it? And if it, transforms it if they feel the empathy and they're transformed then that's good enough for me i did some reading into epigenetics because um i read about the psychic scarring and i thought you know how many generations does it last for and they did really interesting studies into the dutch famine that happened i think just after the second world war and they found that those children were primed for starvation and then had uh, much more of a propensity towards um, diabetes and eating disorders and obesity. And they did a similar study with pregnant women during 9-11 and looking at how stress triggered their offspring. And I just think it's, it's absolutely fanta fantastic research and it all kind of began to make sense to me but just the other day uh, I was listening to something and I thought okay so we've looked at genetic scarring and epigenetics with trauma but what about epigenetics and ancestral joy 
aren't we also primed for singing and dancing and putting our arms around each other and going, oh, that's great crack. I mean, I, I sometimes, you know, tap people on the arm because I'm so moved. And it, for us, it's a kind of, come on in you, you know, you're a mate. And sometimes I do it with English people and they go, oh, why did you hit me? <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. It's just like the, the embodiment of my excitement is not misread in Ireland and it can be misread here. And I just find that so interesting that I've been looking at ancestral shame and ancestral pain and what about ancestral joy? And I, funny enough, I, I feel like my first collection was about loss and leaving Ireland and grieving and the second collection I just thought I'm not going to look at that I'm going to be drawn towards um, exuberance reconciliation resolution and um, I saw those books as balancing those things in me and maybe after famished I am going to go and write something that is about the physical experience of joy, companionship, the collective touch, uh, things that we're really defining in absence now. My final question is the question I ask pretty much every uh, interviewee is, what does actually being a member of the diaspora mean to you? I suppose it's pretty tribal being part of the diaspora. I mean, I say that I left and I didn't look back, but my poems looked back. But that's not true. I'm always looking back. I'm always looking for a way to be back, um, but keep what I've learned here with me. And I don't know if that I'm ready to do that yet or I can find a way to do it. But yeah, I, I love that kind of exploded belonging. Wherever you go, you'll find your Irish pub or you'll find someone who looks like your Auntie Vi and you, there's the kinship um and without being sentimental i i do cherish it you've been listening to the plastic podcasts with me doug devaney and my guest cherry smith the plastic pedestal was provided by tony murray music by jack devaney find out more about us and subscribe at www.plasticpodcasts.com or you can find us through Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. The Plastic Podcasts is sponsored using public funding by Arts Council England.